0: Acts chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. "'Do you understand what you are reading?' Philip asked. "'How can I?' he said, "'unless someone explains it to me.' So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading. "'He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent.' Hi everyone, welcome to our online service. It's great to have you join in again this week. Well, we're in a sermon series on the servant songs from Isaiah. That's uh, those uh, predictions about Jesus, the Messiah, who is also the um, suffering servant. And we started way back in Isaiah chapter 42 with the servant for the bruised. Uh, We then looked at the servant for the nations in chapter 49. Last week, we looked at the obedience of Jesus, uh, his faithfulness to his task in chapter fifty. And today we finally come to the summit of this series. Uh, It's in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verse 13, and it goes right through uh, to chapter 53, verse 12. Uh, And this passage, this fourth servant song, is what many scholars call the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Okay, this is the highest point in the Old Testament. And the view, it's incredible. I mean, we could spend hours up here just looking at this, this incredible view that Isaiah saw uh, all those years ago when he saw the sufferings of Jesus. So this fourth servant song, it's by far the most elaborate out of all of them. Uh, if you have a look at it, you can see that, it, that there are five parts to this passage. And uh, each part, uh, or stanzas, because it is a poem after all. So each stanza is three verses long. And it ends the same way it begins. It, ends with, uh, it begins and ends with God proclaiming how great the servant is. And so that tips us off to the fact that it's probably uh, structured according to this unique structure that a lot of um, Hebrew uh, scriptures uh, has. It's called a chiasmus. But the idea is that it starts and ends at the same way. And that's supposed to draw your attention to the middle of the passage where the main point is. And that's definitely the case here because the main point is this middle stanza, verses 4 to 6, uh, which describe why uh, the servant suffers. Now, the importance of this passage for the New Testament um, is pretty obvious because it's quoted seven times in the New Testament. And I can put these, uh, the, the references up here on the screen. And do you know, there's something like 40 allusions to this passage in the New Testament. So just one example, Mark 10, verse 45, where Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Okay, there's that servant idea. And he says, I've come to serve to give my life as a ransom for many. That idea comes straight from Isaiah 53. So it's a very important passage for understanding uh, who Jesus is, what he's about, what he has come to do. And it's clearly written about Jesus. But remember, this was written 700 years before Jesus came along. So it is predictive prophecy and it's written in such detail and with such precision that you would actually think that Isaiah himself was there on that day, watching Jesus being crucified as an eyewitness. And yet he saw this 700 years before it took place. That's a good indication, or a pretty good, um, makes a good case for the divine uh, inspiration of um, the Bible. So let's read over it and uh, then we'll unpack its meaning. Um, But before I do that, let's actually, let's pray. Oh Lord God, uh, your truth is hidden from the wise and the learned and revealed to little children, yes, to little ones. Uh, So Lord, we pray that you'd give us childlike faith today, which receives and believes the message of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the mystery of the gospel revealed. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you enable us to see Jesus Christ, our Lord, in all of his glory as he is presented in this wonderful passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read from God's word. So Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. This is the word of God. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. Appearances are not always what they seem. Sometimes something of incredible value can be thought of as rubbish. For example, one of Steve Jobs' first ever computers, the 1976 Apple I, was discarded by someone at a recycling center in California. Now, the managers of the recycling center, however, understood the value of that to collectors, and so they sold it at an auction for 200,000 U.S. dollars. You know, graciously, they did try to track down the person who discarded it so that they could share uh, some of that money. But appearances are not always as they seem. Uh, Modern art is another example of this. Uh, Sometimes modern art can be uh, misunderstood, as was proved by a cleaner at an art gallery in Italy, who was a little too thorough in her job Uh, because she threw away a modern masterpiece worth 15,000 euros by artist uh, Paul Branca. Now, the thing was, it was a sculpture uh, that resembled rubbish or rubbish bins. And uh, it was supposed to uh, help viewers to consider the environment. uh, Well, it ended up as landfill. Uh, See, sometimes things of incredible value are thought of as rubbish. Appearances are not always as they seem. And that's definitely the case when we come to this fourth and climactic servant song in Isaiah uh, that predict the sufferings of the servant. Uh, see, the big question of this passage is, what do you see when you consider the cross of Jesus? Do you see something of great value? Do you see something of great beauty? Or are you likely to pass over it like someone uh, who discarded something, something of great value? What do you make of the sufferings of the servant? Well, this fourth and climactic servant song tells us what Jesus' sufferings were. And uh, we can summarize it under these three headings, that his sufferings were mysterious, his sufferings are vicarious, and his sufferings are therefore victorious. So let's look at this first one. First, his sufferings are mysterious. uh, And they are mysterious because they bring together two things that don't belong together, that, that almost seem impossible to be together. They bring together triumph and defeat, or exaltation and humiliation. So the passage begins with triumph. Have a look at verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, and highly exalted. Now, where have we heard that language before in Isaiah? Back in chapter 6, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Uh, he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And that same idea is mentioned a few other times in Isaiah, uh, but every time it always refers to the Lord Himself. And yet here the servant is being given the same praise. And the same worship as God himself. Why? Because of his wise action. He acts so wisely and is so successful in what he came to do that he receives the honour and praise of God himself. And see, that's surely what Paul is alluding to in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, to 11, where he describes Jesus as exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. See, he is the triumphant one, exalted over all. And yet, how could that possibly be? How could he be the exalted one? Because look at him, look at him. He looks the complete opposite of wisdom. So you have a look at the next verse, uh, in verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. You know, in other words, what happened to Jesus was so extreme, and and the the suffering that he endured was so bad that people found it hard to even look at him. You know, it's like when you watch a movie and there's a scene uh, that's particularly disturbing, maybe with violence, and you know you don't want that image rattling around or haunting you for the next week. So what do you do? You cover your eyes. And that's what's going on here. It says he was marred beyond human likeness. Uh, One commentator gets this across by saying that the people who saw it, who saw the sufferings, weren't asking, who is this? No, no, they were asking, is it human? He was beaten so severely. But then verse 15, it switches gear again because it says he's going to sprinkle many nations. Uh, Kings will shut their mouths. Now, sprinkle many nations, that sounds like a priest's work of making people fit for God's presence. And kings shutting their mouth, it's getting across the idea that that the mystery of what's taking place is so profound when you see it that you are left utterly speechless. And so this is the mystery of the servant's task. It brings him the highest glory on an international scale, and yet he looks Humiliated. He looks defeated. And the mystery continues in the next stanza in verses 1 to 3. Uh, But this time we actually zoom in for a more personal look. Uh, We get to see the servant from the insider's perspective, uh, people who know him firsthand. And here in this first stanza, I mean, in the second stanza, verses 1 to 3. They they say that the mystery of what was taking place initially stumped them. See, in verse 1, they ask, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is a a metaphor for God's power. So the Exodus, uh, a massive event that's described as the work of God's arm. Uh, But here in the servant, is a greater revelation of God's power. Um, But what does it look like? What does God's power look like? Well, these insiders tell us in verses uh, 2 to 3, they say that He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. See, here is the power of God revealed and it's revealed in a man of sorrows, a man of suffering. What, what a, a mystery this is. Uh, this is why the group are asking, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, who has believed this message? Because it's so counterintuitive that God's power would come in such weakness into the world. Do you know, this is such a big deal. Verse 1, it's such a big deal that both John, the Apostle John in John chapter 12 verse 38 and Paul in Romans 10 verse 16, they both quote this verse to explain why it is that the Jews rejected their Messiah. It's because the greatest display of God's power was right there in front of them, was standing in their midst telling them, I am, and yet they couldn't see it. They couldn't see into this mystery because Jesus didn't fit their categories. That's not how God is supposed to work, so they thought. And they made sure of that by getting rid of him once and for all. Appearances are not always as they seem. But do you see, it's, it's not just the Jews who had Jesus crucified, who couldn't see into this mystery. But many people, even today, cannot see into the mystery of the cross. The world doesn't see this. I mean, the fact that Jesus' name is a swear word just proves the truth of this passage, that he is despised, that he is held in low esteem. Uh, The fact that people don't think it's even worth their time just to stop and look into the claims of Jesus, just to check it out, to see if it is true. Many people don't even bother to stop and do that. Again, Jesus is held in low esteem. People cannot see that the greatest proof of God's existence and the greatest display of His power is in the person of Jesus Christ and in particular in His suffering. They cannot make sense of the mystery, even though it's hiding in plain sight. God's greatest work is revealed in the mystery of the cross. Can you see that? Can you see into the mystery? Because the sufferings of the servant are mysterious. That's the first thing. The second thing we see here is that the sufferings of the servant are vicarious. Vicarious. Okay, the second stanza was where the, the group of insiders um, gave their understanding of things. Uh, but in this third stanza, in verses four to nine, uh, sorry, verses four to six, the same group speak again, but this time they're able to tell how something that was a mystery to them has now been revealed. You know, something that uh, something where they you know at first they couldn't see. But now the meaning has dawned on them. See, at first, the suffering uh, of the servant, it just seemed like he was a loser. You know, he, he looked defeated. His appearance was revolting. But remember, appearances are not always as they seem. Because it turns out that in his suffering and, he, and in this thing that looked so sickening, that the most beautiful thing was taking place. And that's described in verses 4 to 6, which is the heart of the song. And it goes like this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed." Now, notice the change of attitude here in, the, in these people toward the servant. See, the group speaking say that the servant's sufferings were so bad that initially they considered him cursed by God himself. See how they say that? They say that uh, we considered him punished by God. And in one sense, they were right. Because on the cross, Jesus was under, the, under God's judgment. God's wrath was being poured out on him. His cry on the cross says it all. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet now this group realize that what happened to Jesus was not because of anything Jesus had done wrong, but because of something that they had done wrong. And yet Jesus was taking the fall on their behalf. That's why I say that the sufferings of the servant are vicarious vicarious. I know it's not a word that we use uh, that much, although we do talk about living um, vicariously. Um, but the root meaning of the word vicarious uh, simply means to stand in someone else's place, you know, to act as a substitute for someone. And so Jesus' death in that sense, it was vicarious. Uh, he suffered as a substitute for others. See, so if you have a look more closely at this passage, notice how Jesus uh, takes up Or has things put on him that don't rightfully belong to him, but actually rightfully belong to us. So if you look at verse 4, it says that he took up our pain. Uh, He bore our suffering. Uh, In verse uh, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Okay, so he was cursed by God. Uh, He was punished by God, but not for anything he did wrong, but for what we have done wrong. And the summary is there in verse 6 that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are the sinners. We deserve the punishment. But God punished Jesus in our place, on our behalf. Our punishment was on Him. That's the point. And so what are we to see when we consider the cross of Jesus? What are we to see when we we look at His death and when we hear His cry of rejection from God Himself? What are we to see? We are to see more clearly than ever what we deserve for our sin. We're to see more clearly than ever that the God who made us is a holy and just God who cannot overlook our sin. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. He must punish our sin because he is a just God. And here we see, when we look at how much Jesus suffered, we we now see how bad our sin actually is to God, how much it offends him, how much of his punishment must come down on our sin. We see exactly what we deserve when we look at the intensity of the punishment that Jesus bore. And yet when we see Jesus willingly take up and have our sin put on Him and have God's wrath for our sin come crushing down on Him, why would He do that? Why would He willingly go through that? In fact, His willingness to do this is really brought out in the next stanza, in the fourth one, uh, in verses 7 to 9, where it says that He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a, sl- a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now look at this picture of humble submission. I mean, have you ever been accused of a crime uh, that you didn't do, or accused of just something wrong that you didn't do? If you have, how did you react? Surely you protested your innocence. You know, we're not going to be punished for something we didn't do wrong. And yet have a look at Jesus. Look at at him as he's accused of crimes that he didn't do. He was the innocent one. He's the only one in all of history to have never sinned. And yet when he was put on trial, he was silent. Did not protest. Why? Because he was willing to die. He was willing to go to that cross. Why? So that he could become the sacrificial lamb so that he could be slaughtered on our behalf and have his blood poured out for our forgiveness. And we know that's exactly what Jesus intended, because on the night before he died, uh, this is in Luke 22, verse 37, on the night before he died, he quoted Isaiah 53, verse 12, uh, that he was numbered with the transgressions. And he said to his disciples, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, men, tomorrow I'm going to fulfill Isaiah 53. I'm going to be crushed for your sin so that you and you and you can go free for all of eternity. Now, is there anything more beautiful than that? That he would be crushed for our sin? See, this is the mystery revealed. This is the mystery of the cross. The most sickening scene in all of history is the place where my sin was punished on Jesus. See, his sufferings were vicarious. He stood in my place. He bore the wrath that I deserve. That is the mystery and the beauty of the cross. And so the sufferings of the servant, they are mysterious. And yet now we see that the sufferings of the servant are vicarious. And because of that, that means his sufferings are victorious. And that's the third thing we see here. Uh, It's in this final stanza, verses 10 to 12. Now it begins by reiterating that everything that happened to Jesus from beginning to end all happened according to a divine plan. It was not a random accident. This was not uh, some unfortunate tragedy. But every detail of Jesus' suffering from beginning to end was all according to God's will. Because it says there in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And to cause him to suffer. And why? Well, it says there at the end end of that sentence, in order to make his life an offering for sin. There's that sacrificial language again. But what about Jesus? I mean, what happened to Jesus? He died. Uh, Verse 9 says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Uh, Verse 12 says he poured out his life to death. But was his death the end of him? Was that the end of Jesus? Well, strangely, verse 11 in the middle of this stanza starts talking about Jesus after his death as being alive again. Uh, it says there in verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, what can that possibly mean? I mean, what would what, you recognize Isaiah was thinking as he wrote those words? Um, how would he understood that? That Jesus, he definitely died, but now he's alive? I mean, what does that mean? Well, we're in a... Much better position than Isaiah because we actually live after the event Uh, we live on this side of the death of Jesus and we know that three days later Jesus rose again okay he conquered the grave he was victorious over death and the resurrection the resurrection is so important because it proves the innocence of Jesus remember death is the punishment for sin The wages of sin is death. We deserve death because of our sin. But Jesus had no sin, so his death was for our sin. And that means once our sin was actually paid for in his death, then what what would happen to Jesus? What should happen to him? Of course, he's going to rise again. Death can't hold him down. He was innocent. And that's exactly what he did. He, He rose again. He was vindicated in his resurrection and having paid for our sin, having conquered death on our behalf, have a look what it says in the rest of verse 11. <clears throat> it says here that by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Justify many. What does it mean to justify many? It means to declare them righteous, to declare them right with God. And so what this is saying is that those who are guilty not only have their sins paid for in full, but on top of that, on top of the forgiveness, they are now declared righteous. They are declared as having fulfilled all of the law, as being perfect in God's sight. It's what righteous means. And so it turns out that a double transaction has taken place at the cross. Uh, On the cross, the righteous one, Jesus, he was treated... As guilty and punished and the guilty ones those that he died for are now treated as righteous and so here we have the heart of the gospel this is what the Bible is all about this is what Christianity is all about that Jesus was treated by God as if he had done all the wrong things that I have done so that the moment I believe I am treated by God, as if I've done all the right things that Jesus has done. That is the gospel. That That is the most wonderful thing in the world. And that's why Jesus deserves the highest praise and glory. That's why this song ends where it begins. It ends with a statement from God the Father about his victorious son. So have a look at verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> so you yeah, go. that's the servant song. And so now let's get back to that question at the start. What do you see when you consider the cross of Jesus? Do you see the arm of the Lord? Do you see God's power revealed in weakness? Do you see your saviour bearing your sin, being punished in your place? Can you see into this mystery? Or are you like those people we talked about at the start who discarded something of incredible value because they couldn't see it? Do you believe the gospel? Because this is what makes you a Christian. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus was punished for my sin. See, a Christian is someone who is, who is more than happy to admit, I am a sinner. More than happy to admit, I deserve to be punished for my sin. I deserve eternity in hell. I deserve that. I know that. And I know that there's nothing that I can do to take away my sin. I can't rub it out. I can't keep the law well enough to cancel out my sin. I can't do that. And yet, a Christian is someone who is confident that they are right with God, that they are safe for all of eternity. Why? Because they're relying fully and only on what Jesus has done for them. Is that true of you? Do you know one of the ways that you can tell that you are trusting in Jesus, that that you are depending on his death? Do you know how you can tell? When Christ is your treasure, when he is your treasure. So imagine you were gold detecting And uh, without realizing it, you happen to wander on private property. Now, while on this private property, you discover a gold reef worth literally hundreds of millions. And in all your excitement, you race back to your vehicle to get more gear. And yet on your way out, you now realize, whoops, I was on private property. But hang on a minute. It's for sale. This property is for sale. And so what do you do? You race home. And you sell absolutely everything you've got, even the engagement ring. It's all sold. Why? So that you can buy this property so that that treasure can be yours. Do you know that's the story that Jesus told to convey the experience that every person has when they actually discover this gospel? This is the experience. Uh, When you come across the gospel, you discover something that's so beautiful and so valuable that everything else, by comparison, doesn't matter anymore. Because now you've got Jesus. He's the treasure. And that's why a Christian is someone to whom the cross of Jesus means absolutely everything. Is that true of you? Is that what your life testifies to? To Jesus. Okay, Jesus, he is the servant for the guilty. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Sinless lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a saviour. The servant for the guilty. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this incredible gift of your son, who you willed to crush in order to make him an offering for our sin. Oh Jesus, how can we ever praise you enough for the incredible love that you have shown to undeserving sinners like us, that you would stand in our place, that you would take our fall, that you would shield us from the wrath of God by bearing it in full in your body for us. We thank you that that your blood was poured out for our forgiveness and we thank you that because of your righteous life credited to us that you now have declared us righteous in your sight. Oh, Father, how could we ever comprehend just how wonderful your love for us is? How can we ever get our minds around the the breadth and width and height of the love of Christ? But we thank you that we, we know that it's sure, that by faith that this gift of salvation is ours. And we thank you, Father, that we have all eternity to celebrate what you have done and to be able to praise you with our lips. We ask that you would help us even now to live for you Help us now to testify to this wonderful good news of your work, of the servant for the guilty. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's close with a, uh, the application that Peter made, actually, of the servant song. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, it says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and the overseer of your souls. Amen. See you around.